Hi there. In this episode, I'll be going through obsessive compulsive and other related disorders. So this will be obsessive compulsive disorder, otherwise known as OCD, body dysmorphic disorder, also known as BDD, trichotillomania, hoarding disorder, and narcolepsy. Starting off with obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD, we don't truly understand or know exactly what's going on, but the theorized patho behind OCD is there's an abnormal communication between the basal ganglia, orbitofrontal cortex, and the anterior cingulate gyrus. So again, that's not something I had needed to know for my exams as far as I can remember. The main things to know is that is more about the obsessions and the compulsions. So the obsessions, these are bothersome intrusive thoughts that elicit a feeling of discomfort. And then compulsions, these are rituals or actions that the patient will perform to relieve the discomfort of the obsessions. And then something that's important is that these obsessions, they're ego dystonic. So it would either be egosyntonic or egodystonic is kind of the two we're looking at there. In OCD, it's egodystonic. So this means that the thoughts and behaviors are in conflict with the needs and goals of the ego, or further, they're in conflict with the person's idea of self-image or their ideal self-image. So all I'm trying to say there is it's bothersome. So it bothers the person to have this condition, to have these things going on, whereas egosyntonic would be... More so that behaviors, values, and feelings that are in harmony with or acceptable to the needs and goals of the ego. So this would be that they're not bothered by the condition or what's going on or or the obsessions that they're having. But OCD, it is ego dystonic. These it's bothersome to the patient. This is not something that they're they're happy to have going on. So that was a question that did come up for me. So it's ego dystonic for OCD. That helped me a little bit. OCD is ego dystonic. Going into, just real quick, the, there's a triad of uncontrollable urges. This has come up as well. So OCD, ADHD, and Tourette syndrome. So these are, are known as the triad of uncontrollable urges. Just kind of an extra little bit there, but I know I think it's kind of helpful to know. And then going into the risk factors. So the mean age of onset is about 20 years old. 50% often present in childhood and adolescence, but 20 years old is kind of the mean age of onset. There's generally four different patterns of obsessions, compulsions that these patients will have. So the four major patterns, again, is going to be contamination. So this is a compulsion for contamination. So obsession that may include cleaning, hand washing, or avoidance of contaminant. Something that you might see in patients with this is, you know, really red, dry hands because they're washing them so often or using so much uh, hand sanitizer. Another of the major patterns might be pathologic doubt or harm. So this is something like forgetting to unplug the iron or unplug or, or turn off the oven. Just so having to check this concern that they have that they didn't do one of those things, you know, multiple times to avoid that danger. You know, I, I find it interesting because myself, I know that I'll check the oven every time I leave the house because there's a little bit of worry there, you know, whatever. But the main thing, again, is that this is causing significant distress or impairment in, in, the, in the patient's life. So just because you're cautious doesn't necessarily mean you have OCD, <laughs> but it's something to keep in mind because that is one of the major patterns. Another one is symmetry and precision. So this compulsion being ordering or counting things. Another thing that you might see might be a little bit uh, stereotypical and then intrusive obsessive thoughts. So with or without related compulsion. So they're having these intrusive and obsessive thoughts. So the four there again is contamination, pathologic, doubt or harm, symmetry or precision, and then intrusive obsessive thoughts. So those are the four main ones. They're pretty stereotypical. So 
you know, sometimes we have an idea of what OCD is just on, I mean, honestly, maybe like TV shows or something like that. Sometimes it's not wrong to keep that in your mind as long as we know that we have to be looking at the diagnosis and at this condition through the lens of somebody who's going to be practicing medicine appropriately, not just labeling someone because they appear to be fitting that stereotype. Looking at the diagnostic criteria, this is going to be A, B, C, and D. A is going to be the presence of obsessions, compulsions, or both. I had kind of already gone over the obsessions and compulsions before, but again, obsessions could be like recurrent, persistent thoughts, urges, or images, things like that. Compulsions might be something like repetitive behaviors like the hand washing or different mental acts like prayer, counting, repeating words silently, you know, just something like that. You might, again, be kind of stereotypical. B is the obsessions or compulsions are time consuming. So they take example, like greater than an hour per day to do all of those things. So it's affecting the patient's life. And then the obsessions or compulsions are time consuming or cause clinically significant distress or impairment. C, the obsessive compulsive symptoms are not attributable to the physiological effects of a substance or another medical condition. And then the disturbance is not better explained by the symptoms of another medical disorder or another mental disorder. Last, going into treatment real quick. So the first thing you're going to see here is CBT. That's going to be the first line psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. And then we might go into pharmacotherapy. Under that CBT or the psychotherapy, there are specific types of therapy that might be used. I don't think that's necessarily important for the exams to know. And unless you're going to be the one doing that, where if you're going to be, I mean, in my in my case, a physician assistant or a physician associate, I'm not really handling that. So for the exam purposes, psychotherapy, CBT, that's the first line. Pharmacotherapy, the first line would be an SSRI, most likely something like escitalopram, fluoxetine, sertraline. Uh, and then one I have here is that paroxetine is not approved for pediatric populations. I don't think that really came up for me, but just something to, you know, a little bit extra information there. Higher doses are needed compared to depressive disorders. So you might hear somebody saying, oh, we're going to use an OCD-like dose on this SSRI. All that's really trying to say is that we're using higher doses because giving somebody an SSRI for OCD at a depressive disorder dosing at a lower dosing level, it's not really going to do much. It needs to be a higher dose uh, compared to the depressive disorders. Other medications that can be used beyond SSRIs, if the SSRIs are not effective, might be TCAs like clomipramine because it is most serotonin specific, SNRIs or augmentation with antipsychotics, and then severely debilitating or resistant cases. This might actually be psychosurgery, uh, cingulotomy, something I have there, or electroconvulsive therapy. I've done a little bit more research into the electroconvulsive therapy. It's still very present. I, I wouldn't say that it's it's going on all the time, all over the place necessarily, but it absolutely is, is still used today and it can be very effective. So again, that's more if you've tried all of the other things, nothing else is working you may consider electroconvulsive therapy, but odds are you won't be the ones making that decision. Next, we can go into body dysmorphic disorder or BDD. So this is characterized by excessive preoccupation with at least one perceived flaw or slight defect in physical appearance in which the individual believes they look abnormal, ugly, unattractive, or deformed that is not observable by others or appears slight to others in comparison. So these Patients, these people may commit repetitive acts and behaviors in response to this preoccupation. Average onset for BDD is around 15 years of age, and it may also be associated with anxiety or depression disorder. In terms of diagnostic criteria, it's going to be A through D. A is a preoccupation with at least one non-existent or slight defect in physical appearance. I already talked about that. And just an example of how much time it might be just accumulating and taking up their day is they might think about the perceived defects for at least one hour a day. You know, it's going to be causing some significant impairment distress. 
B, concerns about appearance lead to repetitive behaviors. So this could be checking the mirror all the time, always grooming or skin picking. It's kind of an odd one, but it is one that, that will be seen from time to time or mental acts as well. So repetitive behaviors or mental acts, comparing one's appearance with that of others. And this will be happening at some point during the course of the day, almost pretty much every day. C, clinically significant distress or psychosocial impairment resulting from the appearance concerns. And then D, appearance preoccupations are not better explained by an eating disorder. There might be different specifiers. I don't know if this is super important to keep in mind, but you may be looking at fair to good, poor or absent, specifying where BDD is at. So fair to good would be the patient recognizes that the beliefs about the physical appearance are probably not true or that they may or may not be true. Poor is patients think that the beliefs are probably true. And then absent would be beliefs are firmly held despite what others think. So fair to good is kind of the best, the best idea, the best of what's going on. Poor is okay. They, they're kind of believing the, the thing that's wrong about them. You know, they're believing that flaw that they see more than not. And then absent is like, I don't care what anyone else says. This is wrong with me. So you might be able to specify that. I wouldn't say it's super important to know the specifiers. The main thing is just generally what BDD is. Uh, a big thing I've seen lately is the whole muscle dysmorphia. So if a patient with BDD are preoccupied with the belief that their body build is too small or insufficiently muscular, I feel like that's becoming a lot more popular lately. I don't know if that's just me noticing that, but I, I've been seeing that a lot more often, especially on social media. And then there may be BDD with panic attacks. So if BDD triggers a panic attack, it's BDD with panic attacks. So this might be something like you see yourself in the mirror and you're just panicking, freaking out because you're seeing that flaw, that defect that, that you perceive, but others really don't. The management of body dysmorphic disorder is going to be antidepressants and or CBT tailored towards the BDD. So again, when you say CBT tailored towards BDD, I don't necessarily know what that's going to look like, but a therapist who's going to be performing that therapy is going to find a way or they're going to be having their own training and where they know how to specifically tailor the type of therapy to a patient with body dysmorphic disorder. But in terms of the antidepressants, SSRIs are going to be the first choice. Next, we can go into trichotillomania. So this is when someone just can't resist the urge to pull out their own hair. So most common in women, there's an increased incidence with a couple other comorbid conditions or other conditions that can kind of go along with this. And that might be OCD, excoriation. So that's more of a skin picking disorder where you're always picking at your skin. And then MDD, major depressive disorder. The physical or just the clinical manifestations of trichotillomania is going to be decreased hair density, coarse hairs in the affected areas and kind of broken hair of different lengths. So really just this side effect or just the result of someone who keeps pulling out their own hair, really. Diagnostic criteria. So this is just going to be A, B, C, D. A is recurrent pulling of hair resulting in hair loss. Usually this will involve the scalp, eyebrows, or eyelashes. B, repeated attempts to stop or minimize hair pulling. C, causing significant distress or impairment in daily function, like almost all of these or like pretty much all of these. And then D is not due to another medical condition, medication or psychiatric disorder. Again, like all of these where we have to rule those things out first. Uh, the first line uh, treatment is going to be CBT, so psychotherapy. And then there's two medication classes that are often used in this or can be used as SSRIs and second generation antipsychotics. So I'd remember this as two medication classes and two medications that are more specific to trichotillomania. So two medication classes, that's SSRIs and second generation antipsychotics. The two medications are N-acetylcysteine and lithium. 
I don't think that came up in my exam. I can't remember having to know the treatment for trichotillomania, but I do know that the psychotherapy for that was going to be CBT. And then it could be like an SSRI, second generation antipsychotic, and acetylcysteine or lithium. I don't have a great way to remember that, but it's there if, if, you know, if you think it's worth the time memorizing that. I didn't quite think it was, so let's kind of leave it there. Next, going into hoarding disorder. So hoarding disorder, we kind of know what it is. I'll go through it a little bit more in the diagnostic criteria, but it's actually most prevalent in the elderly but the behavior often begins in the early teens. So I think that's kind of interesting where you might see signs of it when someone's younger, but you're really not maybe seeing the overall results of this hoarding disorder until someone's elderly. Going into diagnostic criteria, all six must be met. So it's A through F. A is persistent difficulty discarding possessions regardless of their actual value, resulting in accumulation of a large number of possessions that may clutter living spaces. B is a difficulty is due to the need to save possessions with distress associated with discarding them. C, there's the difficulty discarding the possessions resulting in an accumulation of those possessions. If living areas are uncluttered, it is only because the interventions of third parties. So if there's a spot in the house or whatnot that seems like, oh, it's going okay, odds are it was not the person who has this disorder actually cleaning that spot. The hoarding causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. That was D. E is the hoarding not attributable to another medical condition, like always. And F, the hoarding is not better explained by the symptoms of another mental disorder, again, like always. Quick going into the treatment. Psychotherapy. So first line is CBD specific to hoarding. Again, like I had said before, I believe it was with BDD. I don't know what that necessarily means saying it's specific towards hoarding, but the people who are going to be managing that, those therapists, they will know how to properly do that. CBT though, specific to hoarding, that's first line. If they're resistant to initial CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, then you're going to do cognitive remediation. So rather than pharmacologic management, it is recommended for the individuals who do not respond to the initial CBT to go through cognitive remediation. And then pharmacologic SSRIs can be used. So not as effective unless going along with CBT. And then last one real quick, we'll go through narcolepsy. So how is narcolepsy described? It is a long-term neurological disorder characterized by a decreased ability to regulate sleep-wake cycles. So elements of sleep interfere with wakefulness and elements of wakefulness interferes with sleep. Onset, typically this presents initially in the teens and early 20s. Clinical manifestations, there could be a few different things. So chronic daytime sleepiness, meaning that patients are prone to fall asleep throughout the day, and then they'll develop sleep attacks as it's often described as. So rapid dozing off without warning, and then often at inappropriate times. Cataplexy, so this is emotionally triggered transient weakness of the muscles. This weakness often begins in the face and often affects the neck and knees. Patients may develop bilateral weakness or paralysis. Another clinical manifestation might be hypnagogic hallucinations. So this is vivid, visual, tactile, auditory hallucinations occurring as they fall asleep. And then sleep paralysis. So just a complete inability to move for the first couple minutes immediately after waking or before falling asleep. So those are just looks like four different potential manifestations that might occur in somebody with narcolepsy. It could be one, it could be multiple, but those are the main ones to know. The chronic daytime sleepiness, cataplexy, hypnagogic hallucinations, and sleep paralysis. The diagnosis and evaluation, so diagnosing this condition, polysomnography. So this is just like a sleep study really is what that is. So on polysomnography, what you would see is spontaneous awakenings, REM sleep within 15 minutes after the onset of sleep, mild reduced sleep efficiency, and then increased light non-REM sleep. 
I don't think all of that's really something that needs to be kept in mind. The main thing is that polysomnography is going to be the thing you're going to want to do, the, the test you're going to want to do to evaluate somebody for narcolepsy. You could also do a multiple sleep latency test. So this would be the patient often falls asleep in under eight minutes. Naps include sleep onset of rapid eye movements. I would not keep that in mind. Really, the main thing I'd keep in mind is for the diagnosis of narcolepsy, polysomnography. Going to the treatment, the mainstay of non-pharmacologic therapy is daytime naps and regular adequate sleep schedule. Mild to moderate sleepiness. This is going to be an initial trial of modafinil. Severe disabling sleepiness, you could then use oxibate. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. And this would be used for patients with or without cataplexy. And again, cataplexy was that emotionally triggered transient weakness of the muscles. And then going into if they're having cataplexy in particular, first line is going to be REM suppressing medications. So this is like fluoxetine, venlafaxine, atomoxetine, and oxibate. And then one other bit I kind of kept in mind, I believe this did come up for me, was looking specifically into modafinil. So like I said, modafinil is going to be the initial trial medication, and this is with mild to moderate sleepiness. What this is actually doing, it's a wake-promoting medication. So it does this by inhibition of dopamine reuptake, so meaning there's increased dopaminergic signaling. The exact mechanism, it's not really known fully, but thought to, again, inhibit the dopamine reuptake, increasing the uh, signaling of dopamine. And then it can have some adverse effects like headache, dry mouth, diarrhea, decreased appetite, nausea, increased blood pressure. So just some extra little things there. The main thing with all of that, I'd say to keep in mind with narcolepsy is polysomnography. That's how you're going to diagnose it. And then the initial mainstay for non-pharmacologic treatment, daytime naps, and regular adequate sleep schedule. And then the first line pharmacologic treatment, most likely it's going to be modafinil. So hopefully that helps. I know that was kind of a long one, a lot to go through, but I think that kind of covers the main parts of OCD, body dysmorphic disorder, trichotillomania, hoarding disorder, and narcolepsy. Kind of related, kind of unrelated topics, but anyway, I, I hope that helps and see you next time.